this morning, uh, two things are intersecting. We are obviously celebrating Easter. Uh, We are continuing a sermon series called Flawed Followers. Why? Well, if you haven't noticed, um, that church that Steve talked about and which he will lead us in a a season of preaching on over the next several weeks. That church is not perfect. It's full of people who are flawed. And um, sometimes those flaws hurt others. And it can be really easy to, uh, to get disillusioned, if not with Jesus, then with the people who say they follow him. And so we want to own that. We want to talk honestly about that. We don't want to run from that and hide from it. Um, and what better day than Easter to say, you know what, Jesus can give a new start to people who have been hurt by his followers. Jesus can give a new start to those of us who have done the hurting. Jesus can repair what is broken. And uh, we're asking him to do that over these several weeks together. One of the things you'll notice as we read this morning's scripture passage, you're going to hear about the first person to, to realize that Jesus had risen from the dead, a woman named Mary from a town of Magdala. And um, you'll see a theme running through this story, the theme that Jesus' first followers were kind of dull, spiritually not very sharp, spiritually slow to understand and perceive And yet, notice how tenderly he speaks to and about his flawed followers, despite the fact that they are slow to learn the things that he has for them. He has that patience with us still today. Let's open our hearts to hear what he has to teach us through the scriptures today. So somewhere is Rhiannon. There there we are. like at the back. Uh, I'm filling in with, for Sonia Hitchman today. Our scripture reading comes from John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have lain him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. 
They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to the brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment and pray. Lord Jesus, your Holy Spirit pours life into these words, so much life that even though they were written in a language other than English, uh, they can be translated and still have life and power for us because you are at work as we hear them. Lord, this is true in every nation around the world. Whatever tongue these words have been translated into, your Holy Spirit accompanies them, and we pray that we would be ready for his work in our hearts now. Amen. I got a weird phone call this week. Uh, first came a picture, a picture of one of our children with her thumb stuck into an appliance, like it's the water heater, and her thumb stuck in the water heater. And then I got a call from Trisha saying, I want you to know everything's okay. <laughs> um, the water heater exploded and water's going everywhere, and, but it's all right, we got it. So don't rush home, we're good. Uh, well, I was planning to leave in a few minutes anyway, do I need to leave right now? No, no, we're good, whenever you can get here, it's all right. So, you know, it, it's, we've been going through the list, getting ready to leave for 10 weeks to be across the ocean. And you go, look, prepare for Easter, get ready to preach, you know, check, meet with all the staff and the team and the elders, send all those last emails, check, uh, pack, get everything bought at the drugstore that you know, check, passports, check, water heater explosion, flood the basement, check. We got it covered. That was like the missing piece from our week. Um, <laughs> And so we had this incredible opportunity for this thing that's always there every day. It's just a routine part of life, right? Every time you walk into the kitchen and you pull the little handle, psh, water comes out. It's great. You never think about it. You know, every time you walk into the restroom, plus the little handle, poof, flush. Awesome. You never think about it, right? Need to take a shower? Great. Need to go run? Take another shower? Great pollen three inches thick on you, you know, because you walked outside, for example. 
and it's Atlanta. Need to take another shower. Great. Take it for granted. You don't take it for granted after a weekend like the one that we had, right? All the water of the house gets shut off for about two days and we're bumming showers off of neighbors and we're filling the five gallon bucket up in the pond to pour into the back of the potty so you can flush it. And we're, you know, having to open bottled water to have that morning cup of tea because some things must go on. And when the water got turned back on, it's like, we're not taking it for granted now. Look, you can move the handle and water comes out again. Yeah! You're like, these people have never seen a water faucet before. Um, Sundays are like that for Christians. Uh, the church is bigger and older than most of us tend to realize. One of the things I've been learning about recently is in the first couple centuries of the church's life, people weren't entirely sure which to celebrate Easter. Why? Because every Sunday we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. And there were some people who were like, every Sunday ought to be that special. Why have one once a year? Now, eventually, more churches decided that it's okay once a year to kind of blow up the water heater and find a new appreciation for the thing that's always there. And so every time we gather to worship, we're celebrating the death and resurrection of Christ. But that routine can make us take for granted this thing that is so special. And once a year, we stand and kind of in awe at moving the handle on the faucet and see the water come out again to say this is an amazing reality today I, I want to use the scriptures that we've read just to talk about three of the things that Jesus has done for us let's talk about death and life and love I want to blow your water heater up and replace it with a new one right <laughs> How do we do that? Let's, let's think about death and how Jesus defeats death. Um, he is buried in a tomb. The, the, the place that our scripture reading uh, started, right, is with Mary Magdalene, accompanied by many other women. John's gospel only focuses on her. Other gospels tell us that she was part of a group. What are they doing? They are coming to the tomb, and she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And, and that word keeps coming up again and again and again through our scripture text. Why? Because tombs are where you put people who have died. And, and Jesus was defeating death. Not only that, but the way the whole Bible works Death is the key sign that we have lost God's blessings, right? It's the thing that disrupts life, and it signifies every other kind of disruption that happens in life. And so representing that in our text is the fact that Mary is weeping, right? Jesus has died, and Mary is weeping. He's the one experiencing this greatest of curses, death. And yet she, even though she hasn't died yet, she, something still has broken and gone wrong in her world. And so she is weeping. Verse 11 says, 
You know, she goes and tells the disciples and, and Peter and, and John, who is the beloved disciple, he never refers to himself by name in his own gospel. They run to the tomb and, and, and Mary walks back to the tomb and while they're looking inside it, verse 11 says, she stood weeping outside the tomb. Why is she weeping? Because our world is broken. And death is the greatest sign of that. It is the ultimate expression of what has gone wrong with us and with our world. When we step outside the patterns of life that God has for us, we experience death. And with it comes a host of other forms of brokenness. Sadness, sorrow, grief, tears, mourning, anxiety, fear, depression, you name it. And so when Jesus defeats death, the biggest dragon of all, he's defeating all the smaller dragons too. He's making the world right. He is repairing what has been damaged. And this is where we have to stop and say, when, we, when Christians talk about Jesus defeating death and when Christians talk about one day Jesus returning and wiping away every tear and the weeping being no more because there's nothing left to be sad about in his good world once he finishes his work of repair. When, that, when we talk like that, we are not talking about language games. We're not pretending we are not talking about metaphors for the human capacity to be resilient. Some of you have heard a version of the Easter story that goes like that. Christians wished that Jesus was still alive, and so they made up the story that he was, and we can make good use of this kind of metaphor these days by saying, well, Humans have a great capacity for hope in the face of challenge. Humans have a great capacity for resilience after hard things come into our lives. Now, I believe both of those things can be true, but those are not the truths that the resurrection of Jesus is about. The resurrection of Jesus isn't about human capacity. The resurrection of Jesus is about God taking on flesh and blood and defeating death. There was a cross-country athlete who lived in Anderson, South Carolina, not too far from where um, we lived during one season of life and ministry. And... Um, this young man got a great deal of attention. ESPN wound up doing a story on him because um, he had significant physical challenges, had difficulty walking, and yet he wanted to be on the cross-country team. And uh, every race, he would fall down like 100 times. And it would take him an, an hour or longer to finish a course that even the slowest runners were finishing in 25 minutes. Fastest runners are finishing at like 14, 16, 18 minutes. 
And they would all line up to watch him finish. And he would come in every race, this bloody mess, because he's fallen down and gotten back up and fallen down and gotten back up and fallen down and gotten back up. He is this like living parable of resilience. But notice this. When someone falls and they need to get back up, there has to be something solid underneath them that they can push against. Human resilience is worthless if there's not something solid for us to stand on when we need to get back up again. And that's the good news of Jesus' resurrection. He has defeated death. There is something solid here. Notice that Jesus' first disciples had no category for the fact that he was coming back from the dead. What is Mary's first assumption? Verse 2, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. Her first assumption wasn't, oh yeah, we need some kind of living metaphor for human resilience. And Jesus conveniently rose from the dead, so we would have our living metaphor. She had no category. Her category was people get stolen from tombs all the time. In fact, just 20 years after Jesus' resurrection, the Emperor Claudius passed a law condemning people to death if they disturbed a tomb. It was such a problem, the emperor himself had to address it. So Mary's like, I got a category for this. I got a category for somebody robbed the grave. I got a category for there were 75 pounds worth of expensive ointments and perfumes that we put on the body and someone has stolen them. <laughs> I got a category for that. And so she keeps going back to that, right? Even when Jesus is standing right behind her, she, she thinks he's the gardener and says, are you the one who took him away? Just tell me. She's got a category for someone stole the body. Someone robbed the grave. Something happened to create a new category for Jesus' first followers. The thing that created the new category for them is evidence they saw with their own eyes. Or in Mary's case, evidence she heard with her own ears. Mary. And finally she realizes what's happening. Peter and John go to the tomb and they look and see there's no body there and look when people rob graves they take everything why are the cloths still here this makes no sense things they are seeing with their own eyes are creating this new category for them they're not pretending they're not engaging in wishful thinking something has happened that changes reality for them. Let me invite you, if you haven't considered that the resurrection of Jesus is not a fairy tale, it's not a legend, that it's an actual historical fact that happened in our time and space, our flesh and blood reality. If you haven't taken that claim seriously, dig into it. Let the possibility that one human being has experienced death and then defeated it. Begin to do its work on your whole world and change everything. Let's talk then about life. 
Not only did Jesus defeat death, he shares life with people who will trust him for it. Um, it seems like that would be obvious, right? Well, if he's defeated death, then by definition, he's alive again. Yeah, but what kind of life? It's, it's, it's a specific kind of life. And it's hinted at in verse 17 when, when Jesus says to Mary, uh, don't cling to me, right? Another, another kind of reminder that, that this is not a ghost story. It's not a fable. I have a body that you could grab hold of and hang on to, but don't, right? Because there's another step I have to take in this drama of redemption. I've got to ascend to the Father. And, and if you think I'm sort of permanently here on planet Earth without disruption, you, let me go ahead and adjust that thought for you now. I'm going to go away to the Father, and then I will return another day. But in the meantime, well, I'm going to ascend to my Father. Why? Jesus has explained that to his disciples the night before he died. Read John chapters 15 and 16, and you'd hear him talking about going away and sending the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, the comforter, the advocate. Lots of different language to describe this one reality. Throughout the scriptures, the Holy Spirit is the giver of infinite life. And so what Jesus is saying is, I am going to be in the presence of the Father, and he is going to give me the gift that he has been waiting to give to a human being once someone lived a worthy human life. And when I receive that gift from the Father, I will share it with all of my followers. And that's the story that unfolds in the book of Acts. If you read the first sermon Peter ever preached, it was exactly that point. He is not dead. He is alive and he has received from the Father the gift of the Holy Spirit and he has poured it out on us today, Peter said. Jesus wants to share life with other people who are not worthy of it, right? He is the only one who ever lived a worthy life. What it took for there to be a worthy human life is God coming down and taking on humanity. There could have been no other life worthy of receiving this gift, this promise, this inheritance that the Father has had for his children from the beginning. But there was no worthy heir. And so Jesus said, I will do it, Father. And then he shares, even though no one else has lived the worthy life. Listen to verse 17 again. I am ascending to my Father, and your father. The gift the father is going to give me, I'm going to share it with you. It's not for me alone. I'm going to share it 
with you. And that brings us to the topic of love. Have you heard people saying this lately? I was feeling some kind of way. You heard that phrase? I love this phrase, by the way. Now, you don't really need to say it, right? It's, it's strictly speaking not necessary because at every moment, every person is feeling some kind of way. Bored, tired, angry, hungry, hangry. Everybody's feeling some kind of way at every moment. So you don't really ever need to say this. And yet it is a very useful phrase because if you listen to it in context, when somebody says, I was feeling some kind of way, what they mean is, I was feeling something pretty intense. Right? So, you know, it, it, it would be in a context like, you know, rush hour traffic, everybody's already tired, frustrated, and this dude cuts me off and nearly kills me, and I was feeling some kind of way about it. You know, or last week the headlines were just awful and terrible, and I, I got to tell you, it was a hard week. I was feeling some kind of way. Like, I want to tell you that Jesus offers us some kind of love. I can't find the right word for it. It's intense. It's some kind of love. It's, it's intense. It's, it's beyond description. Here's why I say that. This Jesus who's defeated death for us, in a real time and space, flesh and blood, historical, this world way. And this Jesus who promises to share life with anybody who would come to him and say, I want your father to be my father too. I want your God to be my God too. I want you to be the one who leads me to the God who made me and restores me to a right relationship with that God so that I can have the same gift that he gave you. I want that. Jesus says, I will share the life I have from the Holy Spirit. It's infinite. It'll never run out. I'll share that with you. Even though he knows how flawed we are. So he makes this promise, right? My father can be your father too. My God can be your God too. <laughs> and he makes it to people that he calls. He says, Mary, go tell my brothers. Now, why didn't he just say, go tell my disciples? Why use that word right here, right now? Because he knows his own closest disciples have abandoned him during the night. He told them they would. He said, at some point, you're all going to leave me alone. I won't really be alone. The Father will be with me. And he said, Peter, you're going to deny that you know me three times. So Mary, please go assure them that I love them with some kind of love. It's a love so intense that the failure of this night hasn't changed it they are still my brothers go tell them go tell them that the deep flaws that made them forget me in the moment when I needed them most hasn't changed my love for them 
I am aware of their deep flaws. Mary, go tell them. Reassure them. They're still my brothers. Even though they're kind of dull spiritually. Right? We read about that in verses 8 and 9. This John gets to the tomb before Peter. He goes in. He saw and believed, verse 8 says. He saw and he believed something. What? Well, verse 9 then immediately says, but as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So John saw something and he begins to believe that something out of the ordinary is happening. This is something more than your sort of ordinary grave robbery. But he still doesn't fully understand even though Jesus has spent three years teaching him and them. And Mary kind of embodies this, right, to sort of this, this spiritual dullness um, and, and slow, uh, slowness to understand uh, in a way that is a little bit humorous. So one of my favorite memories from all of life is seeing the look on my dad's face in the airport parking lot in Glasgow, Scotland, when Trisha and I lived there and and they came to visit us. My dad doesn't fly ever, ever. He's flown twice in my whole life that I'm aware of. And, and uh, they both had to do with coming to visit, well, his grandchildren, to be honest. Um, so he and my mom came to visit us in Glasgow. Now, when you get into a car in Great Britain, which size steering wheel on? It's on, it's on this side, right? It's on, it's on the right. So if you're the passenger, which side of the car should you walk to? The left side. Well, my dad hasn't traveled a lot. Like I said, he doesn't fly. And somewhere, theoretically, he knows that the steering wheel is going to be over here. But in the moment, he's not really grasping it. So we're walking. He's just so excited and giddy, like, A, the plane flight is over. He's excited about that. B, he's in another country. He's never been in another country before in his whole life. C, he's seeing his family. He's going to see his grandkids in just a few hours. He's just on cloud nine and not really paying attention. And we're walking and talking, and I see what's happening. I can just see him walking to the wrong side of the car. Like, he is headed toward what he thinks is the passenger side. And I don't say anything. I'm just kind of like going to let this play out a little bit. <laughs> and we're making eye contact and he's talking, telling me about the flight and, and, you know, how did it go? And what was it like to be on an airplane for the first time in decades? And, and he's just so excited. And I'm just watching and I'm watching. And he gets to the car, this old station wagon, and he opens the door and he starts to slide in and he goes, Wah! And he looks at me with this big boyish grin on his face. Like he just, that was the most awesome thing in the world. That he looked down, there's a steering wheel in the wrong place. And I'll never forget that. Like just this really sweet moment of, um, I could see it coming, but I was waiting for it to dawn on him. When you're a Greek nerd and you look at all the verb tenses of this, it's very clear that when Jesus comes up to Mary, 
He's been standing there a while, right? She's, she's talking um, with these angels. She doesn't realize they're angels yet. Again, Jesus' disciples were, were kind of slow to learn. And um, they say to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she says, they took my Lord away. I don't know where they've laid him. And the text is clear that Jesus has been standing there for quite a while. He, he had stood there. It's kind of over here. It's like he's standing back watching what's about to happen and, and letting it slowly dawn on her. Is he doing this out of mischief? Is he doing this out of love? Is he doing it out of politeness? I don't want to interrupt her conversation with these angelic beings. I want to wait till she can give me her full attention. Whatever it is, he's standing back there for a while and she knows someone's back there. And she thinks, well, it's the gardener. And then at some point, he just says, Mary? And I want to imagine that there's this like big boyish grin on Jesus' face in that moment. It's me. I've good news for you. You don't have to weep anymore. Who are you looking for? You found him. Here I am. And there's nothing about that scenario that says, Mary, I'm disappointed that it took you so long to realize that was me. Mary, Peter, and John were here earlier, and they knew something was up, but they still didn't completely understand, and I was hoping you would do a little bit better than they did. And I'm disappointed, Mary. You don't get any of that. What you get is just this tenderness. And she says, you are my Lord, my teacher, my master. And he doesn't say, mm, not anymore. Now, the kind of love I have is really only for people who are sharper than you're proving yourself to be. Maybe next week you can reapply to call me teacher. But first you got to prove that you're worthy. And Mary, you go back and you tell those men who used to be my disciples that if they can get it together, then maybe one day I'll let them apply to be apprentices. And if they do okay, then maybe they'll be full-fledged disciples again. And then if they do okay with that, well, brother, that's just out of the question. There's nothing of that in the text. Jesus has this kind of love that, that even the fact that he got crucified and literally came from the dead hasn't changed his love for Mary or for Peter or for John or any of his disciples. He literally went to hell and back and it didn't change his love for his people. Some people say that's unconditional love. Fair enough. If you're hiking in the mountains and you fall into a canyon and you're injured and you have no hope of rescue, you want unconditional love. You want people to come find you where you are as you are. 
you don't want them to send up a signal that says, if you're going to meet us 10 miles down the path, we'll bring you home. You want them to come to you right where you are. And you don't want them to send you a message in a bottle that says, hey, guess what? If you can stitch up your injuries, if you could set your broken right arm, then we think there's enough chance that you'll make it, that you'll be worth our effort. No, you want to be loved unconditionally. I want Jesus to come find me where I am as I am right now. And you see him saying that. Mary, you've been slow to realize it, but here I am, right here, where you are, as you are. Peter, John, the other disciples, they got a lot of growing to do. They're still my brothers. Go tell them. Mary. It's not just unconditional love, though. It's counter-conditional love. Jesus loves us in a way that, that pushes in the opposite direction of our condition. You're down in that gorge. You're hurt. You want people to start loving you in the direction of healing and wholeness. The opposite of the direction that your current condition is. You're in great danger. You want people to start loving you in the direction of safety. Lift me out of the hole. Put me back on solid ground. Counter-conditional love. Thanks to an author named Tom Wood for that insight. It's one thing to be loved unconditionally. It's another thing for Jesus to say, I love you so much, I will come to you where you are as you are, and I will begin working in a way that reverses everything that is most hurt and broken about you. And I will love you back to health and life and safety. That is some kind of love. It's not a fable or a fairy tale or a myth. It's not a hallucination the first generation of Christians had. It's not a legend that we made up because it's a great way to convince people to believe your new religion. Tell them something they'll never believe. Tell them something they'll find, yeah, I have no category for it. Yeah, we don't make stuff like this up. <laughs> Jesus can reverse death. He can heal everything that is broken about you and about me. So, if you have flaws, don't let them keep you from following Jesus. You are not too flawed for him to love. And if your flaws have been making it harder for other people to love and follow Jesus, ask him to help you in that. And he will love us. He will love us unconditionally, counter-conditionally. He will love us in some kind of way. Let's take a moment and pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your tenderness to Mary. It would have been a good moment for a theology lesson, but it was an even better moment for you to just speak her name call her back to yourself and let her know that her tears could be wiped away. 
Thank you, Lord Jesus, for facing death and defeating it because we never could. We wait for you to return. You have defeated your death, and one day you will come back and defeat my death, our death. You will put the final enemy under your feet for good, and you will wipe away every tear. Draw us to yourself by this kind of love that we can't begin to understand or we can't even find the right words to describe it. Show yourself to us, we pray, and cause us to love everything we see in you. Amen.